Good evening. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Song of Solomon, chapter 5. Song of Solomon, chapter 5. It has been a while since we were last in this text. For various calendar reasons and for various illnesses that were in my house. Uh, So it is a joy to be back before you opening God's Word. I will take a moment to reacquaint us with what is going on. This book is very different than most other books. It is a song or a collection of songs. It is lyrical poetry written by King Solomon. It contains a story. It's a story of love between a woman and her beloved, her shepherd king, her great bridegroom. And this story takes a lot of twists and turns. We've seen them passionately describe their love for one another in anticipation of their wedding day. We've seen the king tenderly reassure the bride, even when she was fearful and she felt ashamed because of her appearance. We've seen the bride seek diligently throughout the whole city because her beloved was missing and nowhere to be found. We've seen the Davidic king in all of his resplendent glory process into the wedding day with all of his royal pomp, using language reminiscent of God leading his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And we also noted the language there that the bride and the beloved used to describe one another is biblically and theologically significant language. They describe each other and they describe their love in the same kind of language, the same imagery used to describe the relationship between Yahweh and Israel, which the Bible pictures in many places as being in a marriage covenant. The Lord has wedded Himself to His bride, Israel. And that relationship shows up throughout this book, as we will again see tonight. And then at the end of chapter 4, we saw them marching towards their wedding day. And at the end of 4, beginning of 5, the wedding has happened. The bride and the groom finally experience the consummation and all the bliss that comes with it. They finally entered, as it were, into the promised land, the garden temple. And they can experience the love they've so greatly anticipated. But as we get into chapter 5... We'll see that all is not right. The scene suddenly and almost jarringly shifts. Let's look at chapter 5, and I'll read beginning in verse 2. Listen to the word of our Lord. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment. How, how could I put it on? I have, I have bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed. It failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but I found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. The watchman 
They found me as I went about in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. This is God's word for us this evening. Let's, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would take a text that at first blush is perhaps confusing, feels distant, feels hard to understand, perhaps even harder to apply rightly. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would use your Holy Spirit to remove the blinders of sin and show us, illumine the text and help us to see it, to see ourselves and to see our beloved bridegroom Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at the first few verses and see the king's rejection. The king's rejection. Verse 2 begins by setting the scene for us. The bride is asleep, but it says, my heart was awake. And people, commentators, argue whether or not this exact sequence is meant to be a dream or not, I'm not really sure it makes a whole lot of difference because we're not talking about historical narrative, we're talking about poetry. It's not like he's describing the historical events of the Exodus or the life of Jesus. It's poetic song and that impacts how we read things. We're meant to glean lessons, see connections. It's meant to move us, to stir us, not merely fill our heads with more data. And so the wife is pictured in bed, and she's stirred by the sound of knocking on the door. The beloved from outside says, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. At this point, surely she would know without a doubt who was knocking on the door and speaking to her. She'd recognize his voice. She'd know those sweet terms of endearment. He's used them before. In fact, this is the highest concentration in a single verse of the whole book of these kinds of endearing pet names. My sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. This is the king, her husband. His locks, the locks of his hair are wet with dew. Remember, he's a shepherd king in this book. He's probably been out all night. It's not just past bedtime. Dew falls late in the night, doesn't it? He's been out probably tending the flocks, taking care of the herds. And this is the one that she has pined for. She's so longingly looked forward to spending time with in the preceding chapter. She's, she's gone around the whole city looking for him, the one that made her heart leap almost out of her chest. You'd expect that she'd be elated to see him. She gives an unexpected response to his knock. Verse 3. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on again? I bathed my feet. How could I soil them? The king is knocking at the door. He's asking for her company. But she doesn't jump up. She does actually the opposite. She gives excuses why she can't be bothered. I've already taken off my garment. I'm already in my pajamas. 
I'm already in bed. Maybe it's cold out not outside. I don't want to get out of the, the covers. I've already bathed my feet. I'm clean. I don't want to get my feet dirty again. That'll just be a hassle. So much work. She's not willing to be inconvenienced. The, the once eager and available bride, the one who pleaded in anticipation in the preceding chapter, saying, come into my garden and eat of my choicest fruits, now is saying the opposite. The kitchen's closed. The garden is unavailable. Off limits even. I wonder if any of this poetic language might sound familiar in our marriages. Your spouse comes knocking, seeking communion. And instead of eagerness or willingness to be available, we can come up with excuses. It's too hot. It's too cold. I've already put this on. I've already taken that off. There's certainly times where we are genuinely exhausted, unable to muster the strength, but we should all remember that in healthy marriages, there is a mutual willingness to sacrifice for the good of the other. Mutual willingness to serve one another. I've already preached 1 Corinthians 7. I won't belabor the point, but if you are consistently like the woman in this passage, consistently declining advances from your spouse from whatever side, then you're risking putting your marriage under undue temptation from Satan. That's, that's what Paul says. I, it's not John English speaking. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's 1 Corinthians 15, uh, chapter 7. Marital love ought to be regular, it ought to be the norm, except for a season of mutual prayer. Otherwise, abstinence ought to be avoided, lest undue temptation come. I'm going to be delicate here, so I'll use the words of a very old preacher. I quoted him when I was preaching through Proverbs, but he said that tender, well-regulated, Domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passion. Tender, well-regulated domestic affection is the best defense against the vagrant desires of unlawful passion. Now, lest the burden here be placed solely on the one being inconvenienced, I think there's a lesson here to take from the other as well. What did the king do when his advances were rebuffed? He didn't huff and puff. He didn't stomp off and pout. Nor did he demand his rights. You don't tell a king no. How dare you? Nobody tells the king what he can't have. I have the authority to kick this door down, woman. He didn't say that. He didn't go to Scripture. He didn't say, don't you remember what Genesis says? Adam knew his wife and the two became one flesh, or perhaps to be anachronistic. Don't you remember what Paul said? Don't be apart except for prayer. There better be some praying going on in there. 
Nor did he say, don't you remember John English's sermon? Don't do that. Don't do that. He quietly, respectfully honored her request. He left her alone. He put her desire to remain in bed and treated that as more important than his desire for her to open up. But even more than that, he didn't merely leave her alone. He leaves her with a gift. He left her with a present, a sweet-smelling oil called myrrh. Verse 4, she says, My beloved put his hand to the latch. My heart was thrilled within me. I rose to open to my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. He had left her with myrrh as a sweet-smelling reminder, as a gift of grace. Perhaps he knew tonight's not going to be the night. And that's okay, but I'm going to leave her with a sweet aroma. Perhaps that will be a blessing for next time. I'm going to leave this, as it were, I'm going to leave her with a sweet taste in her mouth to mix metaphors. There's no bitterness, there's no anger, there's no frustration, there's no retaliation. There's no recounting. I've done this and this and this and this. You owe me. Is that how we respond? Are we patient, understanding, willing to sacrifice your own desires for the good of your beloved? There ought to be mutual sacrificial love in a healthy marriage. We should outdo one another in showing honor. And if that's lacking, then we need to ask ourselves why. Probably need to talk about it. Or if you're not in a good place in your marriage, you need to pray to the Lord and perhaps seek the wisdom of other godly saints. Marriage ought to be a sweet respite of joy in this life. And you, if you find it to be the opposite, then you need, to help. you need help. Talk to your pastors. Talk to godly saints. Get wisdom. But before we leave these few verses, I want to make a few more connections. Because I think Solomon is here hinting at something greater, something beyond mere human marriage. I think he's using this poetry to teach us lessons regarding Israel and Israel's marriage covenant to the Lord. If you will recall, when, when God brought the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt, he took her to a mountain, to Mount Sinai, and he made a covenant with her, and he married Israel in that covenant. And they hadn't even made it off of the mountain yet, and Israel commits adultery. Moses hadn't even come down from the mountain, and Aaron and the people threw all the gold together, made a golden calf, and said, here is the God that brought you out of Egypt. And if you remember a few weeks back, well, more than a few weeks back, and I'm I'm building off of some things that Jim Hamilton has done in his really helpful book on Song of Solomon. He says that Solomon, when he's writing this book, is presenting the king in terms that are reminiscent of the Lord coming out of Egypt, leading his bride out of Egypt. And the bride is spoken of as though she is the promised land, as though she is even the Garden of Eden. Look at chapter 4, the first 15 verses. And the consummation of the marriage relationship is described as though the king has entered into the garden. Look at 4.16, 4.17, 4.18, 4.20, 4.21, 4.22, 4.23, 4.24, 4.25, 4.26, 4.27, 4.28, 4.29, 4.30, 4.31, 4.32, 4.33, 4
5.1. And just as Israel had entered into the covenant and immediately turned away from the Lord at Mount Sinai, that's what we have in this passage. 5.1, they're entering into the relationship. 5.2 and following, she turns away. So to say it another way, I think Solomon is painting a picture here that corresponds to the history of Israel and how Yahweh's bride has treated her shepherd king. Israel was unfaithful, unwilling to commune with the Lord, unwilling to honor Him and His law. And that led to all sorts of problems, which we're going to get to in a minute. But let's not rush past a, a personal application here too. Some of you have been married to the Lord for a long time. You trusted in the true Davidic King, Jesus Christ. You united to Him as your bridegroom, and yet your love has grown cold. He used to excite your heart. His Word stirred within you. Now your love has grown cold and your faith feels stale. You used to be like the woman whose heart was thrilled by the king, but now not so much. There is a lesson here for you too. You see, there's a way to grow sluggish in our faith. Apathetic. Lukewarm. Indifferent to the things of God. And if that's you, then I want you to be warned. Because you're in a dangerous place. God speaks to this condition later in the Bible. In Revelation chapter 3. A text that I think specifically alludes to our passage in Song of Solomon 5. But in Revelation 3, Christ speaks to the church of Laodicea and rebukes them. He says to them, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, but as it were, you're useless. You are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and I will spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. If we remain in a position of indifference towards God, of apathy towards Him, if we never turn back to Him, we are tempting Him to discipline us. Scripture says a faithful father disciplines the son whom he loves. And He loves us enough not to leave us in our coldness. One old pastor said it this way, those whom the king loves, he will not leave alone in their carelessness. He will find some way or another to awaken them, to rebuke them, to chasten them. When we are unmindful of Christ, He thinks of us. And He provides for us. In fact, the very next verse in Revelation 3 leaves us with a promise. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Sounds like Solomon's king here. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him. Christ's promise to his people is that whatever our indifference, whatever our lack of faith, our apathy, however lukewarm we may feel, he is always ready. To enter in and to receive us. Even though we are like the woman in the text, we can't be bothered to get out of bed. Christ is the faithful Davidic son, the king that is greater than Solomon. And just like the king 
in our text leaves a bit of grace, a little bit of myrrh on the door handle, so too Christ has left a bit of grace to warm your heart again. Maybe it's this sermon that is the myrrh that you needed to smell to wake you up out of your stupor and help you see your king rightly. Don't reject the calls of the king. Don't don't forget his sacrifice in your place that he was the rejected one suffering alone and exposed for the people that had rejected him. And unlike the king in verse 3 of our text whose locks are wet with dew, Christ was alone in a garden sweating drops of blood. He knew agony. He knew what it felt like to be alone. He knew what rejection, rejection by God, felt like. He was despised and rejected by men, Scripture says. And He did all of that for the bride who had rejected Him. So that she could be made acceptable and lovely. He was, he was treated like the criminal. So that the harlot might be made into a pure bride. That's the good news of Scripture. I hope that good news will warm your lukewarm heart. That it will be a pleasant aroma to your souls like myrrh to the woman's nostrils. No matter how far you've wandered, no matter how many times you've rejected Him, He stands at the door and knocks. Will you let Him in? Will you trust in Him? I hope you will. Because if you don't, you're putting yourself in a position to suffer even greater misery like Israel did. You're tempting God to discipline you. That's, in fact, that's what happens next in our text. If we look at verses 6 and 7, we see the bride disciplined. The bride's disciplined. Verse 6, I opened to my beloved but my beloved had turned and gone. My, my soul or my heart failed me when he spoke. I sought him but found him not. I called him but he gave no answer. The bride has changed her mind. Now she wants the king to come in. She gets out of bed. She opens the door. But no one's there. She looks all around. She she can't find him. She calls out for him and hears nothing in return. It's very similar to chapter 3. She's likewise having a dream. She, she can't find her beloved. She panics. But unlike chapter 3, this time had to feel so much worse. She's undoubtedly feeling a sense of guilt. He was here and I wouldn't let him in. And now he's gone. Guilt with probably fear. And so she runs out. She's seeking him. Verse 7, which is honestly one of the most puzzling parts of this whole book. Verse 7, the watchmen found me as they went about the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. She's running around the city looking for the king. She, she stumbles upon the night watchman who, whose job it is is to patrol the city and look for problematic characters. And the watchman, probably mistaking her for being a woman of ill repute, that's the kind of person that would be out in the middle of the night. They find her and they beat her. 
They bruise her. They take away her veil, or we could say her, her cloak, her garment. So what does all that mean? I want to be very careful here, because some people have made a hash of this, read some bad stuff out of this section. Don't want to insinuate that if a woman rejects her husband's advances, she will get beat up out in the city. It's poetry. This is a dreamlike sequence. It's not historical narrative. It's fiction. But what conclusions ought we to draw about this episode with the watchmen? The watchmen. Who are the watchmen? What are they meant to represent? Well, there's, there's a few options. Some are better than others. Some commentators, especially the older ones, take the watchmen to be representative of poor ministers of the gospel, poor shepherds in Israel, because watchmen is used for the spiritual leaders in Israel in other places, that word is. And they say if that's the case, the watchmen here might picture either unskilled or unfaithful ministers of God's word who wrongly read the situation. It's kind of like uh, when a godly saint like Hannah is praying to the Lord, she's pouring out her soul, and Eli next door looks at her and says, are you drunk, woman? And she's praying. You know, he, a foolish minister wrongly diagnosing the situation and chastising a faithful woman. And I would agree, it's certainly possible that these watchmen could represent the the false prophets that mislead and mistreat the faithful in their day. That would come after King Solomon's time, the, the prophets that Jeremiah and Ezekiel rebuke, for example. John Gill and Matthew Henry, this is their kind of view. It's, it's possible. And maybe that's behind... A little bit, but I'm not convinced that's all what's going on here. Other more modern guys, like uh, Tremper Longman, say that the watchmen represent the unfriendly gaze of the public eye. Says specifically, the watchmen, quote, are the unfriendly urban public gaze versus the private intimacies of the couple. He offers nothing by way of a defense of his assertion and leaves me with no reason to really commend his assertion. Most of the modern guys struggle on these kinds of things. A third view, which, which I tend to lean toward, is that the episode of The Watchman is a parable and it teaches the dangers of rejecting the king. Specifically, I think Solomon is teaching us a lesson here represent, or referencing the national fate of Israel as well as a personal spiritual lesson for rejecting the king. And let me explain that. Solomon is writing during his reign. And in his reign, Israel reaches the peak. They've got peace. They've got prosperity. Everything is going well. They're in the land of promise but Solomon knew his Bible. He knew that Moses had written in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 28 through 32 that Israel would break the covenant. And that that 
covenant breaking, that rejection would earn the discipline of the Lord and they would be expelled from the land. Solomon knew that. He knew that. In fact, if you hold your finger here and turn back to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8. This is Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple. In a very real sense, this is the peak of Israel's spiritual history. First Kings chapter 8, starting in verse 46. This is Solomon, the king, the shepherd king, the Davidic son, praying. He says, if they, that's the people of Israel, sin against you, God... There's no one who does not sin. And you are angry with them and you give them to an enemy and they are carried away as captive to the land of that enemy far, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and they repent and they plead with you in the land of their captors saying, we have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive, you hear the repeated refrain, in that land over there, by their captors, the people that hauled them off. And they pray towards their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place their prayer and their plea. And maintain their cause. And forgive your people who have sinned against you. And all their transgressions that they have committed against you. And grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive. That they may have compassion on them. For they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt. From the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant. And to the plea of your people Israel. Giving them ear when they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage. As you declared through your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Solomon knew in the midst of all the prosperity and the peace that was experienced under his reign, he knew that exile, that discipline and unfaithfulness was in the cards for the future of Israel. Things are going great now, but God in that day when they blow it, and they get exiled, and they're in their captive's land, hear their prayers, Lord. When they get disciplined and sent off, remember them. And so going back to Song of Solomon 5, I think the episode with the watchman is a parable about the nation of Israel, a warning. She rejects her king, and the king departs. Just like the glory departed the nation, and then the nation endures suffering. I think there's a warning also for us personally, individually. When, when we reject the king, when we ignore his presence, we ignore his communion with him, we, we accrue for ourselves discipline. It may be felt in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes we're left without a sense of his presence. We feel 
alone. He doesn't actually leave his people, but he can withdraw the comfort sense, the feeling sense of his presence, so that we feel alone, bereft of our beloved. This is his loving discipline to bring us back to him. Sometimes he takes us through physical suffering to wake us up, to bring us back to him. Sometimes it's financial hardship to teach us where our treasure really is. Sometimes it's relational strife to remind us who is actually our peace and our Savior. Whatever the discipline, when we reject our King, He loves us enough to wake us up from our slumber and bring us back to Himself. And as we begin to close, I want to make a final observation. See, sometimes we can go through God's discipline and we experience very acutely some temptations that we didn't expect. Sometimes when we're being disciplined, we're suffering, we can despair, we can wallow in self-pity. I think of... uh, Oh, his name. The bird in the Lion King. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Right? That's self-pity. We wallow in it. Nobody suffered like me. Man, I've got it the worst. We can grow bitter towards God. How could he do this to me after all that I have sacrificed for him? All that I'm I'm so faithful. I'm at church all the time. I give regularly, I pray, I read my Bible. This isn't fair. Or maybe we grow jealous. We feel our suffering. We feel like the woman who's been bruised and beaten in our text. And we look over at the guy right next to us whose life seems to be going so well and we covet that which hasn't been given to us. Have you ever felt that way when you're under the rod of the Lord's discipline? (laughs) Look at verse 8. Notice how the bride responds coming out of the discipline. He says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. He's saying, women, I want you to make me a promise. That's what I adjure you means. I want you to promise me if you find him, you tell him. Tell him what? She doesn't say, if you find my beloved, tell him how they treated me and how beaten I was. Tell him how cold I was when they took my garment. No, she says, tell him I am sick with love. She's not the least bit concerned with the suffering or the discipline or the trial she's going to, the worst part of her night that night was not being in the presence of her king. It was not the discipline. She is sick with love, and to have her beloved apart from her, that's the worst trial that night. It was not, it was not the circumstances. It was not the bruises. It was not being with her king. And discipline... Suffering, trials in this life, in a believer's life, ought to be this way. A faithful believer 
going through trial, is able to say through all of it, God is righteous. Everything that the Lord does is just. And they are able to persevere. They know that the worst part of any trial is not the physical suffering, but the absence of communion with the king. So believers, especially if you're going through trial, you feel under the disciplining hand of the Lord, don't fixate on the burden or on the immediate suffering. Don't let it crush you or make you bitter. See beyond it. Look behind it, because the rod of God's discipline on the back of your neck is held by the hand of God Himself, and His hands are full of goodness and love towards you. If you trust in Christ, God is not wrathful towards you. He does not hate you. He's not punishing you for what you've done. He's taken that away in the cross. God has no more wrath for you. If he did, he would be unjust because Christ's atonement would not have been enough. He's loving you. He's molding you. He's shaping you. He's weaning you from the love of this world. And He's pushing your heart towards your eternal good, which is communion with Him. In fact, if we could use a little artistic license here, it's as if the King is using the trial to wake you up. He stands at the door and is using that trial to knock. He wants to commune with you more deeply. And if a trial is the means for him to do that, then don't ignore the knock. Listen to his voice, which is often speaking the loudest when we are suffering. Let his voice make your heart leap within you as it did for the woman. But if you're not trusting in Christ, then you need need to know That the discipline you feel now is but a mild foretaste of the eternal wrath and punishment that awaits you in hell. Don't ignore the clear teaching of Scripture that this shepherd king came to die for the ungodly and it's simple faith in him that allows us to be saved. In fact, that's the same message that is pictured for us in the Lord's table, which we're going to celebrate tonight. Christ presents a picture of the gospel. It's as if Christ is here speaking to you in pictures. We might say, he's not here, but he's left a bit of myrrh for you. He's left something for you, a bit of grace to remind you of himself. And what does he say to his bride? He says, I tasted the bitterness so that you could taste sweetness. You rejected my body, so I gave mine for you. You rejected my embrace, so I endured abandonment on the cross in your place. If you're trusting in Christ and are committed to his word and his people and to prayer and fellowship, then we invite you to join us at the table. But if you have not yet trusted in Christ or if you're out of fellowship with another congregation, then go and be reconciled then you may join us at the table. I'll pray and then we will process up through the middle aisle, starting with the front rows and going back to our seats around the edges. And we'll we'll also have somebody walking around with a plate of the elements if you are unable to make it up front. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of the faithful 
King Solomon, the faithful Davidic son, the promised seed who has come and died in the place of his bride. Build us up. Encourage us through the elements here at this table. Use them to build up your church and strengthen us through trial. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.